Welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. My name is Jeremy Jones. I'm a fourth-year medical student at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and the producer for today's episode on multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, commonly known as MIS-C. Our host today will be Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine. We are also joined by three national experts. Dr. Joshua Rocker, Division Chief for Pediatric Emergency Medicine at Cohen Children's Medical Center at Northwell Health and Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine and Pediatrics at the Zucker School of Medicine. Cohen Children's is one of the first places to see cases of Miss C during the first surge of COVID-19 cases in New York City, and Dr. Rocker was among the first to publish about Miss C. He has spoken about Miss C on many platforms, including a panel with the American College of Emergency Physicians. We are also joined by Dr. Hamid Basiri, an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and a faculty member of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at CHOP, where he serves as one of the immunocompromised host ID consultants, as well as associate fellowship program director for CHOP's Infectious Disease Fellowship. Dr. Basiri is a co-director of CHOP's immune dysregulation program, and his laboratory has been involved in uncovering the immune pathogenesis of pediatric COVID-19 in MSC. Finally, he also serves as the principal investigator in the Center for Childhood Cancer Research. We are also joined by Dr. Kathleen Kiotos, an assistant professor of anesthesia and critical medicine at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She has completed fellowships in both critical care and infectious disease and is an attending physician in the CHOP Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. She also serves as the medical director of CHOP's antimicrobial stewardship program. She has published extensively on MIS-C and is the lead author on CHOP's clinical pathway for managing children with MIS-C. Welcome to our guests, and thank you for joining us today for this interesting and current topic. Thank you, Jeremy, and welcome to all our new listeners, and welcome back to those who have been listening to our podcast since January 1st, 2021, when we debuted. I'm very happy to report we have over 2,200 downloads. That includes those of you here in the United States and our growing international audience. Speaking of international, today we're going to be discussing a disease that has no borders. It's been reported and diagnosed all over the world. And before we get to a discussion about MISC, I want our listening audience to get to know our guests a little bit better. So, guests, the first question, we'll start with you, Josh. What professional achievement are you most proud of? That's a good question. Um, I started a pediatric emergency medicine conference uh, in New York City. Uh, We will be having our 10th conference this year. And it's a way of bringing the PEM fellows together, the PEM community together regionally. This year, it's going to be virtual. It's going to be national. But just, you know, the fact that the, you know, the small community can get a little bit smaller, a little bit more intimate and get to know each other and just, you know, spread the up and coming advances in pediatric emergency medicine and uh, just having people get to know each other. Great, Josh. And hopefully some of our listeners are now aware of that conference and may uh, want to attend. Katie, how about you? What professional achievement are you most proud of? 
So um, as, as you may know, I did a training in both infectious diseases as well as critical care medicine. And while this isn't as, as specific as Josh's, I'll sort of follow along and say that one thing I'm very proud of is that there's a growing uh, little cadre of people interested in pursuing that career path, both here and at other institutions. And so it's been really exciting to see how other people have put that together and, and shaped positions with that overlapping interest. Thank you, Katie. Hamid, how about you? Uh, like Katie, I, I, I'm also dual trained, but in a different way. I have a PhD in immunology and a, a sort of clinical subspecialty in ID, PEDS ID training. And I will give you, I guess, what are two instances or little tiny tidbits in my life where I felt like particularly proud of what I did. And I think the first one was as a graduate student, being able to actually publish my own very first author paper, where I really was the one who drove the work made all the figures, did all the writing, and felt like I'd actually achieved something doing all of the work myself instead of uh, having that being done in a more collaborative manner. And the second is, I think, a little sort of anecdotal, very tiny glimpse of my life, which is probably true of many physicians, when they realized for the first time that they made a significant impact in the life of a patient that they've taken care of. And I have a very distinct memory of that um, in a patient that I'd taken care of. We had a fungal infection. I took care of that patient as a fellow in ID. And years later, I saw her. And frankly, I did not recognize her. And yet she recognized me. And she came over and she gave me a hug. And she said, you know, you did this for me. And then when I thought about it, it really hit me very, very deeply and very hard. That's a great story, Hamid. Uh, I think we all hope we have stories of patients like that. But what a great ending. Uh, one more question, Josh, your favorite disease and why? So I love procedures. So I'm gonna go to a uh, less of a disease, but a patellar dislocation. It's the nursemaid's elbow of the, uh, of the adolescent. Takes a second to repair and they are anxious and boom, you get it in immediately. I love doing that procedure and the patients love you immediately as well. Instant gratification, right, Josh? Yep, yep. Katie, how about you? What's your favorite disease? It's hard to say. It's more of a syndrome, but I really actually like caring for patients with uh, sepsis in the ICU, as you might have guessed, based on my background. But I find it really satisfying because it illustrates a lot of really interesting physiologic principles that are really the reason why a lot of us go into critical care in the first place. And it's a disease that's often curable, which is always nice to feel like you've cured something. So that's my favorite thing. Great, Katie. And again, for our new listeners, your colleague, Dr. Scott Weiss, joined us for one of our earlier podcasts, and the topic there was sepsis. So again, feel free for our new listeners to go back and listen to that episode. Hamid, favorite disease? Uh, just like I uh, started by giving you two anecdotes, I'll give you two diseases. The first one was the one that I saw probably uh, as a medical student on my ID rotation that actually made me think ID might be the coolest subspecialty ever. And it was actually not even an infectious disease. It was, it was a case of tick paralysis where the mom of the patient actually noted the tick, the tick was removed, and the child who's close to being intubated walked out of the ICU you know, two days later. So I thought that was one of the coolest things I've, I've seen in, in a long time. And the other is a disease that actually does have some relevance and is sort of uh, near and dear to my heart, and that is uh, X-linked lymphoproliferative disease. It's not a common disease, but it is a disease that um, I and my mentor studied to some extent and tried to understand the underpinnings of, 
and actually formulated my sort of desire, my interest in immune dysregulation as a whole, which is something that I'm still involved in at CHOP as, as a multidisciplinary team. Well, uh, interesting second disease, Hamid. I'm glad you're involved in that because the disease we're going to be talking about now, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, does involve some immune dysregulation. I'd like to start off the podcast, and many of you listeners know, by talking a little bit about the history of the disease. And we've talked on prior podcasts, status epilepticus, appendicitis, and the history goes back at least 100 years for those diseases. Today, the disease we're talking about, the history goes back mm, less than a year. We all remember back in December 2019, initial reports from Wuhan, China, of adults being hospitalized with severe pneumonia. We all know it progressed to the worldwide pandemic that we're living through now with millions of people affected. Initially, cases in the pediatric population were rare mildly symptomatic, or even asymptomatic. Katie, from your standpoint, there were a lack of critically ill children. Very few were hospitalized, and very few, even more, were hospitalized in the ICU. And then, a sudden reversal. First case series from Italy on patients seen from February to April of 2020, published in The Lancet, they concluded In this small case series, they saw a 30 times increase in the monthly cases of Kawasaki's disease. Fast forward a few weeks, more and more case series of patients were reported. Initially from the United States, Josh from New York City, from Cone Children's Medical Center, from the United Kingdom, from Italy, France, Spain, describing children who were developing multi system inflammatory disease that developed after a COVID infection. May 13th, the New York State Department of Health finally came up with a case definition. They reported an additional 102 cases, again, following COVID infection. The following day, the Center of Disease Control formally named this entity Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children. Again, came up with a case definition. And if you check the website of the CDC today, Over 2,000 cases have been reported, 30 children have died, cases have been described in 48 states in the United States, and of course we know there are thousands of cases reported worldwide. Josh, you were at the epicenter of COVID back in the winter-spring of 2020. What was it like for you in the ED on a daily basis when you were seeing children come in with a disease that had no name? Um, so I'm actually going to give a little bit of local history as well before I answer that. So February 27th was the first case of a COVID patient being admitted in a hospital in, uh, in New York. He is eventually transferred because he worsens. They didn't know what he had initially, except what they thought was just a pneumonia. He was diagnosed with COVID. And then the next day, I get a call from my school, my kid's school, because they're questioning us if we should close because his children attend that school. Um, so May, March 3rd, three schools in New York closed. One of them is my kid's school. Um, and then I eventually become like the medical advisor for, uh, for this school. So I hear a tremendous amount about this case. And because it was then not just the, it wasn't the first case 
in America, there was, uh, you know, in New York, there was another person. This was the first hospitalized, but then this, it spread from this case. It was a significant, he was a super spreader. So March 3rd, schools close. And then less than two weeks later, we have the first case at LIJ or, um, or in Northwell. 10 days later, the first case at Cohen's. The adult hospital can handle 580 beds. And on the first day, they had 11 admissions. And three weeks later, 650 COVID positive patients were in this hospital that has a capacity of 580. We gave them over 50% of our hospital because we're adjacent hospitals. So our numbers obviously never went like there. There, you know, the, the patient to adult, the, the pediatric to adult ratio is one to 100 in regards to hospitalizations. But we could talk about MISC, but it's always retrospective because we diagnosed them after having a definition and after having a knowledge of what this is. So the first case that we saw was, as we expected, around five weeks after that peak, you know, in uh, mid-April. Uh, so April 17th, we had our first case. And then from April 29th to May 11th, there was basically an average of two cases a day. I remember walking through the ED. Norepi is not a drug that we use often. And every day I would walk by, there would be someone on Norepi during that time period. It was dramatic. Uh, you know, again, these, these are not medications that we see. These are, you know, having some of the kids look sick, some of the kids didn't. You know, some of them looked well. Um, and, you know, would have, you know, the deep rash or, uh, you know, some of the mucocutaneous, you know, almost all of them had the GI symptoms, but, you know, it was, it was shocking. And uh, I remember getting a message from one of the hospitalists, hey, you should know two of those kids were transferred to the PICU, you know, last night, please review those cases. Uh, and that was, again, before we had the diagnosis. So we had over 30 cases before New York State came up with the definition of what it is. And when they did, as you mentioned, it was 102 cases and a third of them were from our hospital. Uh, so it was, you know, trying to figure things out, you know, on the run. So it was a collaborative effort with the PICU, with infectious disease, um, with the ER, with the hospitalists, uh, with cardiology. Um, and these kids were sick. It, it, was, it was a scary time. Wow, that's a great story, Josh, coming from ground zero. Haiti, eventually, not, not too soon after, the disease made it down to Philadelphia, and you actually took care of the first patient at CHOP with multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, Miss C. Tell us your experience early on with this disease. Yeah, so I think a lot of the things um, that were brought up were true for us as well. Um, that patient we actually also diagnosed uh, retrospectively, so this was around you know, the second week or so in April too, so sort of a similar time in the pandemic. Um, and we had a patient who came in with initially really severe hypoxia and refractory shock. She was, she was intubated for a combination of those things. And initially people thought she had acute COVID and had, you know, lung disease as a result of that. And then her lungs actually got better pretty quickly. Um, her, she tested negative for COVID and we um, treated her in the ICU and her constellation of symptoms was a rash, refractory, you know, um, hypotension requiring multiple vasoactives. She had diarrhea, she had conjunctivitis. And so to us, she seemed all the world like a person with toxic shock. And we treated her like that. And 
you know, a day went by another day, another day. And she wasn't, she was getting better, but not better in the way that we would have expected. And her white count was just continuing to climb. She was still coagulopathic. She was still thrombocytopenic and she was sleepier than usual. And it just didn't quite fit the pattern that we had seen before. And so, you know, we involved the usual constellation of players, including the infectious diseases team, as well as the um, dysregulated immune response team, which is a, a team that focuses on dysregulated immunity that we're lucky to have here at, at CHOP. And, you know, at that point, there was no real definitive diagnosis either. And ultimately, we ended up doing an echo to look for coronary artery dilation with the hypothesis that perhaps this was Kawasaki shock syndrome. And lo and behold, we found that she did have coronary artery dilation. We said, aha, she must have had Kawasaki shock. So we then went ahead and treated her with IVIG, with aspirin and with steroids, and, and she started to get better. And then, you know, three weeks later, this disease was defined. And in the intervening time, we saw one or two other patients who we sort of wondered might fit this bill as well. And this is just in the beginning part of May. And um, I remember thinking back, and I think Hamid was in, involved as well. And I remember we said, aha, I wonder if that's what she had. So, so it was an interesting sort of um, experience to be on the really on the cusp of when this disease was defined and to have a patient with it before you knew it was a disease. So it, it was a very uh, interesting time as well. And then I'll just echo another um, point that, that was made already in that we had in the very early stages, this really nice multidisciplinary collaboration. And I remember all of us in the beginning sort of saying to ourselves, is this is this, a, is this a disease? Is this a real disease? Is this a thing? Or is this some epiphenomenon that we're seeing and that it's not a real entity? And at what point do we start to think of this as an actual disease to protocolize treatments, to protocolize evaluations, all of those sorts of things? And so I think we'll get to talking about some of those issues, but that's one thing I remember very keenly from those early days is sort of wondering what we're even dealing with. Great. Thank you, Katie, for that perspective. Hamid, you're sort of a consult service. You're usually called in when the generalists are scratching their heads. Consultant, can you give us the diagnosis? So you were consulted, again, early on, we're talking still, on a disease that really didn't have a name yet. So give us some of your early experiences at CHOP with this entity, which we now know is Miss C. I think that my my experience largely overlaps with that of Katie, which is that, you know, eventually sort of the, the, the dying drop for us, right? And we kind of started to understand that this is a pattern uh, or a syndrome that we are seeing repeatedly. Um, and that was helped uh, obviously by some of the reports out of Italy and also some of the reports out of the UK that started to put together this, this constellation of clinical characteristics and clinical presentation that seemed to indicate that there was a pathophysiologic sort of construct that was driving all of this. I, I will say anecdotally, I think it's important to point out that to some extent, we've been very fortunate that this set of clinical um, characteristics had some overlap with that of KD, because because that because the the sort of the pattern indicated that perhaps IVIG and steroids would play a role in this situation, and it so happened that it did. And so, from that perspective, if you step back for a moment, I think we've been very fortunate that the clinical characteristics match something that we had recognized for years in the pediatric community and knew how to treat relatively better than this new entity. And had we treated the initial set of kids with um, steroids and IVIG and kids had not gotten better, I think this would have been a, a pediatric disaster, frankly. So in a sense, we're a little bit fortunate. Now, 
you could say we're fortunate because the pathophysiology of the two syndromes also probably have some underlying immune similarities that allows for IVIG and steroids to have an impact. But I just want to point that out and, and, and to think that the initial you know, experiences was one that brought me in both as an ID consultant, but also as a member of our, what's colloquially known as our DIRT team or dysregulated immunity response team. This is a team that, that has been around for a number of years and really dealt with significant hypoactivity or hyperactivity of the immune system. Uh, I already told you about my pensions for XLP, and this was something that my that was one of the diseases along with HLH and my activation activation syndrome that this group studies. But the group also, knowing that severe COVID was the first thing that we were seeing, and severe COVID had immune dysregulation as a major component, hyperinflammation as a major component, sort of made the effort to actually go through the paces to get the IOB approvals, to put the SOPs in place, to, to refit our research labs, to be able to actually get these patient samples safely from our ICUs and our floors into our research labs and to start studying this in a, in a manner that perhaps would start to scratch the surface as, of what the immune mechanisms are behind these hyperinflammatory syndromes. And so we started that with the intention of severe COVID, but of course, when Miss C hit, we were in, in, a, in a prime position to actually be able to do that and collect these samples from Miss C patients. So from that perspective, it was, it was somewhat fortunate, but also took an immense amount of work from a very, very large team that really should have been commended all along. And I'm just one sort of tiny cog on that wheel, but you know, both with respect to our ICU consultants, our you know, multiple consultants from immunology, from oncology, from hematology, from path and lab medicine and ID, you know, all those representatives sort of had input in terms of how to construct these research investigations and how to safely handle these samples and bring them in and actually start to put the story together. So that was the initial set of experiences that, that are probably worth uh, thinking about and recounting. Thank you, Hamid. Again, in a disease that is multi-system, we have a multidisciplinary approach. And we'll talk about, like you said, Hamid, all the different specialists who are involved in diagnosing, determining treatment. Josh, what did you want to add? Uh, one thing that I think we were also fortunate about is the ERs were empty. So our focus could really be on what was in front of us. You know, in you know, for our ER, we were seeing 200 patients a day just you know a month and a half beforehand and now we were seeing 40 patients a day you know new york was on you know shutdown and no one wanted to come to the hospitals and so when these kids came in it was like a double impacting effect it was like whoa is this you know what we're hearing about and we had the capacity to really stop and think cuz we weren't working so hard. We were like our colleagues, you know, were working on the adult side, you know, and doing other things. But when you were in the ED, it was slow. And so you really gave the full attention to the kids in front of you. And I think we saw that, Josh, throughout the United States and the world where pediatric emergency visits were down dramatically, yet acuity, not only with Miss C, but with other illnesses was up. Let's sort of transition. We've sort of alluded to some of the clinical features of uh, Miss C. And uh, in the case series that are out there, there's numerous tables and graphs that feature all the clinical features of this disease. I think they're very familiar to our podcast audience. They're on the CDC site. CHOP has a pathway, and I could refer many of our listeners to chop.edu 
slash pathways to look at the MISC pathway, among others. Katie, Hamid, I know both of you were part of the large team that put together that pathway. But what I want our listeners to learn from the three of you, the experts of MISC, what regarding the clinical features, what pearls or what pitfalls? We know there's fever, we know there's GI symptoms, neurologic symptoms, respiratory symptoms. I want the three of you to give our audience a little bit of detail, both in your clinical experience, your reading the literature, why is this disease different than many others? So Josh, why don't you start? What clinical features sort of, again, you learning on the fly are, are unique to this disease and can instruct our group of learners who are listening to us tonight? Right. So I think, you know, the clinical features you mentioned, you know, certainly stood out. And sometimes these kids came in looking extraordinarily ill and other times they looked okay. And then surprisingly, their blood pressures would just, you know, drop. And oftentimes there would, there may be something proceeding. They stood up and went to the bathroom and they came back and their blood pressure was, you know, 30 points lower. So they were very fragile in regards to that. But the thing, I mean, and I, I hate to, you know, shift it a little bit, is their lab findings were the most dramatic things. Clinically, yes, they were sick. But as you said, is this toxic shock? You know, the first thing that came in, ah, you know, this could be a straightforward sepsis case. Um, and some had the dramatic rash or had it had a rash. You know, others didn't. Conjunctivitis, some had it. Uh, you know, others didn't. GI was, you know, almost ubiquitous. And, uh, you know, it was the fever that was there as well. But it was once the lab started coming back, the inflammatory, and, you know, and we'll, we'll get into that. That was the thing that all of a sudden was like, whoa, okay, that's what we're dealing with today. Okay. So you're looking again, Josh, for sort of the clinical features of a Kawasaki's disease-like disease. Katie, you want to ex expand a little bit? Josh sort of said the GI symptoms for MIS-C, much more prominent than we are familiar with with KD. Any other distinguishing factors or any other prominent pearls or pitfalls that you could share regarding clinical features? One thing I'll highlight just from an ICU perspective is I think in particular early on, and this has evolved a bit over time, is that I think people were very focused on the cardiac findings and cardiac dysfunction. And certainly we do see cardiac dysfunction, but this is a disease that's really different than myocarditis, where the shock is driven almost exclusively by cardiogenic shock and myocarditis. Whereas MIS-C is very much a mixed shock with components of cardiogenic at times, but really a lot of distributive shock. So more like what you might expect to see in sepsis and other inflammatory conditions. And for some of our patients, particularly those who have that severe diarrhea as alluded to, even some hypovolemia can contribute to this. And so I, I mentioned that because I think it does take, you know, a, a very um, comprehensive and, and ongoing reevaluation as to what the best therapies are for that, whether that's fluid, which is sometimes the answer for these patients and is generally not the answer for a person with myocarditis, vasopressors or, or vasoactive agents like epinephrine or norepinephrine. And, and then certainly the more definitive treatment in terms of IVIG steroids, et cetera, is really important. But I think from our perspective as ICU people and the people in the ED, really, this is a, a disease where good supportive care, assessment of cardiac output, um, estimates of contractility and um, SVR become really, really critical. So I think that's um, the one pearl that I'll say. And then the, the second thing is just you know, this disease, while it um, has dominated a lot of our, our thinking and has been, been increasingly common over the past year with the pandemic, the other things still exist. And it's very easy. And we've certainly seen this to get anchored on MIS-C being the diagnosis and to um, perhaps overlook 
group A strep sepsis or, you know, a staph osteo or other kind of bacterial infections that, that, that still exist. So I think those are the two things that I would just kind of warn people about is, is that the mixed nature of the shock and need for kind of ongoing reassessments, and then just to avoid that anchoring bias on, on this C as your diagnosis. Katie, Katie, can you comment in the ER, Josh and I, as opposed to our adult patients who, who went to adult ERs, respiratory symptoms predominated. We know the severe hypoxia, the numbers of patients who had to get intubated early on and still are. Talk to us about, again, we see respiratory manifestations in Miss C, but talk to us about, again, Josh, what you see in the ED, Katie, what you see uh, in the ICU. Katie, you want to start? With regard to respiratory symptoms? Yes. Yeah, so so we've we've had see patients who are are hypoxic, but I would say more often we have missed C patients who require either invasive or non-invasive mechanical ventilation because of the um, demand that work of breathing places on their cardiac output, and they then get intubated for for reduction of that of that meta- metabolic demand or for afterload afterload reduction. We've had some kids who end up intubated for procedures as sort of a separate kind of reason for intubation, but I would say a lot of the mechanical ventilation that we're using is really more cardiac focused than it is for for really hypoxemia. Although we have had some patients who are hypoxic from some combination of, you know, lung inflammation as part of this multi-system involvement or pulmonary edema from left atrial hypertension and, and, you know, kind of results in pulmonary edema. So it's sort of a little bit of both things. The other thing I'll say is that we see a lot of tachypnea with this, and that's probably compensatory for a metabolic acidosis that's driven by the by the shock. And so, you know, when the kid's breathing that that quickly, um, you know, it, it may be a metabolic problem rather than a primary respiratory one, but nevertheless solved with more invasive ventilatory support to support that metabolic demand. Great. Thank you, Katie. Hamid, like I said, you were on the consult end of these patients being brought in. What about their clinical features? Help do you discern? Is it Kawasaki's disease? Is it toxic shock? Is it some new entity? Give us your experience regarding clinical features and what pearls and pitfalls you took away from your experience to date. Yeah, I can't reiterate enough. I, I think Katie really hit the nail on the head, which is that you know we have seen others have seen. I've spoken to multiple uh, other national experts and, and people involved in this C care. Uh, about the anchoring bias. You know, we all, you know, our residents continually ask us about Miss C in cases where when we get involved in as consultants, we ask, well, did you consider diagnose X, Y, or Z? And it, it almost seems as if some of those other diagnoses got jumped over to get to the diagnosis as Miss C, even if it were a tenuous sort of clinical connection between uh, the presentation and this. So I think that's really important to state and to to bring to the audience to, to not lose track of all the other things that need to be considered. From the clinical perspectives, I, w- I will say that, you know, the, one, the, the things that just didn't make sense early on were that certainly you can have shock develop in five to 10% of cases of children with KD but this was happening far too often. So we were seeing the clinical characteristics of KD, but shock was highly overrepresented in this population and it just didn't make sense. The things that, that also stood out were, you know, obviously you look at the CBC, there's abnormalities on the CBC, there are abnormalities. Now we know to look at, you know, um, signs and evidence of cardiac dysfunction. But the one thing that I will say as an ID consultant that it kind of stood out to me was in, not uniformly, but in probably a good proportion of cases, when we looked at the procalcitonin levels of these children, 
they were sky high in a way that I'd never even seen in bacterial sepsis, bacterial osteomyelitis. Certainly you can have in those situations where things are being driven by bacteria, procalcitonins that are pretty elevated, 5, 10, 15, 20. But some of the procalcitonins that I saw in some of these children's were like 50, 70. I mean, really incongruous with what we were seeing. And also to some extent incongruous with other clinical syndromes of hyperinflammation that we're used to. So for example, you know, HLH, which is something that our DIRT team sees and consults on all the time, we look at ferritin. And ferritin levels can be extremely elevated in those children in the multiples of thousands, tens of thousands, twenties of thousands. And while ferritin does get elevated in this C, you don't ever see it get to the HLH levels or the NAS levels. So, so there's clearly a very distinct sort of syndrome of hyperinflammation that was happening that was leading to dysregulated immunity, probably dysregulation of cytokines, which is something we ended up actually showing eventually, but that was distinct than other forms of inflammation that we'd previously seen. I think with respect to the, just going back to the shock um, KD thing, the other thing was, you know, we were seeing a difference in a distribution and sort of the ethnic distribution, right? We were seeing a lot of children who had Hispanic backgrounds and Latinx patients, as well as African-American patients. While we know that KD has a predilection more towards sort of the Eastern Asian uh, patients, that was one thing. Age was another factor, right? We were seeing missing patients that were 10 or 11 years old, and that's not the typical age group for KD. So a lot of these things just didn't sort of sit right with making this, you know, be an atypical form of KD that was being this prevalent. Great. Josh, you want to add something? Yeah, I was just going to, you know, say the exact same thing about the age. Insofar as these were just twice the size of Kawasaki, you know, patients to three times. I mean, it was, oh, wow, this looks like Kawasaki's, but why are you, you know, 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, you know, a nine-year-old? So, from the clinical, it was less of the clinical presentation and more sort of, as was mentioned, sort of the uh, epidemiology of, you know, who it was hitting. And it, it just shifted everything, you know, uh, up a bit. And when we see these patients initially in the ED, again, we talked about clinical features, and then all three of you alluded to laboratory findings. And I think in the ED, Hamid, Katie, and uh, some of my ER colleagues who d- who uh, developed the pathway, and I'm sure, Josh, you have similar pathways at your institution, it's sort of that two-tier lab approach. You sort of do some basic labs for patients who may or may not have MIS-C, and if you get abnormalities in the labs combined with clinical abnormalities, you sort of escalate uh, Hamid and look for those other inflammatory markers, and that, again, will help you, not necessarily in those patients who are in shock even though there is a wide differential, but Missy is one of them, but maybe those patients who are not necessarily in shock. Katie, anything to add from a laboratory testing standpoint? No, I like the two-tiered system in, the, in that approach. I think you're right that when they're in shock, it's sort of obvious that from the ER's perspective, they need to come to the PICU and get managed for, for what, whatever's ailing them. Um, it, you know, in terms of the lab findings that I find particularly helpful from a, you know, kind of a specificity kind of perspective, we've talked a little bit about kind of ruling it 
in, I guess, um, is, is the elevated troponin level. Um, we don't generally, we don't check them often in patients with sepsis, but in some ways a troponin is sort of like a unicorn of a biomarker, right? And that it's actually fairly specific for the thing that you're looking for. And so when we see that in a kid who's sort of looking at us and looks actually not so terrible, despite having some shock, to me, that's helpful um, in terms of nudging me towards the diagnosis of MISC because it's just not a pattern that we tend to see with other diseases. The elevations in BNP sort of similar. And so from the ICU perspective, those things tend to be quite helpful. And then really for us, it's about sort of monitoring end organ perfusion. So for us, some of the more important labs for this, regardless of the etiology of the shock, become following that lactate, following the creatinine, et cetera, um, and those sort of supportive labs. Great. Katie, I want to stick with you. And in uh, we know with MIS-C, Upwards of 50% of the patients with this diagnosis are actually admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit. Many of them are placed on pressors. Give us, uh, again, your experience. Many of our listeners, remember, are emergency doctors. As Josh said, we use Tylenol a lot more than norepi in the pediatric ER, but MIS-C sort of changed that a little bit. So just give us your experience, especially the fact that Josh and I both saw patients in the ER who had borderline or soft blood pressures who were otherwise alert and looked, I wouldn't say well, but like that pressure and that heart rate in a child who did not look what we would call toxic appearance. So give us your experience with that subset, which is really not a subset. It's about half patients who end up being admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit. Yeah, it's a really good a good question. And this is where kind of thinking about all those different um, components to cardiac output really comes into play. So, you know, thinking about what do I need to optimize this patient's stroke volume, for example, are they down on preload? Do I need to optimize their contractility? Would they benefit from a vasopressor? Or is this an SVR problem? And I really need to target tightening up that vasculature. And it can be really hard at times to tell clinically, but the things that we tend to look for and to titrate to are, of course, mental status, as you alluded to. But in terms of differentiating the type of shock and where I want to focus my therapies, thinking about peripheral perfusion, are they warm, are they cold? Do they have strong pulses? Are they bounding pulses? Are they weak pulses? We actually use a lot of bedside ultrasound as well to ourselves estimate um, what cardiac contractility is. And, you know, those who are very sophisticated can use all sorts of very um, elaborate parameters, but at least from my perspective, it can tell me, you know, does this patient have severe cardiac dysfunction? You know, do they have a little bit of malfunction or, or are they pretty hyperdynamic actually? Um, and I would make different decisions in those, in those various scenarios, targeting the different kind of elements of, of cardiac output optimizations. So in my experience, many of these patients are fluid seeking, at least early on, and I'm giving them volume back. Many of these patients come to us having already received the proverbial 60 per kilo in the emergency room, and, and they may need more than that. And, and bedside ultrasound can actually help you sort of elucidate that as well. In terms of choice of presser, when I'm putting them on um, a vasopressor, you know, we tend to use epi a lot in these patients just because they have a little smidge of the cardiac dysfunction and some vascular tone issues. And so it's kind of a nice one that sort of both um, augments your, your cardiac output from increasing contractility, gives you a little bit of vascular tone as well. Norepinephrine can be great for those kids who are very vasoplegic, very vasodilated, those with the bounding pulses and diastolic hypotension or really wide pulse pressure. But truthfully, for people who are practicing in the emergency room setting, if the kid is hypotensive or has diastolic dysfunction, has a high lactate, whatever it is that's making you think that they have an impairment in oxygen delivery, just put them on something that you have. It doesn't really matter that much. Just put them on norepi, put them on epi, whatever it is that you've got there, you know, put it on and titrate it to a blood pressure, to a mental status to an improvement in lactate. 
Before we get back to Josh regarding sort of presser use, like you said, Josh, in the ER, Katie, one other question. A lot of times when we admit from the ER these patients to the ICU, we usually follow them in the EMR, see how they're doing the next 12, 24 hours. And what I found, again, we're going to talk about immunomodular therapy, in other words, steroids, IV gamma globulin. But what I found is these patients are on pressors 12, 24 hours total, and then the next day they're transferred to the floor, and maybe two days later they're sent home. Is MIS-C specific for what I would call rapid reversible shock, or is this seen in other shock cases that you routinely see in the ICU? It's, it's more in my experience, and I think none of us really have a vast experience, but it does seem to be a bit quicker um, to reverse than, for example, bacterial sepsis that's led to, led to shock, and certainly quicker to reverse than myocarditis. Those kids tend to be sick for, for quite some time. And, and just like you, my experience has been that a lot of these patients do get better within that 12 to 24-hour period. We don't always even put central lines, arterial lines in these kids, despite them being on vasopressors, because we anticipate that they may get better in the next you know, 6 to 12 hours. There are, however, patients that are more refractory, and these are the patients who, who do end up needing you know, potentially intubation, needing those lines and things like that placed. And, and we have certainly seen patients who require vasopressors for, for several days. Um, and what differentiates the kid who is going to bounce back and get much better quickly. And that one that's going to stay sick a little bit longer, It's I think that's not yet known. Josh, any comments? Fluid presser therapy uh, in the patients that you've seen in the ED or in the literature that you're familiar with? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, this is just a plug for point of care ultrasound at the bedside, really helping you decide which way you want to go with your management. I mean, sometimes you would see a wide pulse pressure and some tachycardia and you would, you know, give the fluids and they would respond. And then you could sit back and watch, you, you know, throw an ultrasound on, you see what their IVC looks like, you see what their contractility is. And so you have a sense of what's going on. Um, I mean, some of these kids had uh, small uh, pericardial effusions, but usually, you know, nothing very significant. So it wasn't as if there was some sort of uh, restrictive or obstructive process going on. Um, and yeah, so we, you know, gave the proverbial, you know, uh, 60 cc's per kilo. Um, and, you know, throw out uh, the ultrasound on them and see, you know, where they were. And more often than not, you know, they would respond, but still be kind of fragile. And then we would initiate, um, you know, epi, norepi. Oftentimes for us with, you know, we saw the, you know, good contractility norepi was where we went because, you know, we saw more of what appeared to be a distributive shock. Great. Thank you, Josh. I want to sort of move to, I guess, what I would consider missy basic or missy for dummies. Hamid, is there evidence between, what is the evidence between COVID infection and MIS-C? Obviously, there seems to be a strong association. And I want you to sort of share with our audience, remember, most of us are ER doctors, so we're sort of ABCD, you know, airway, breathing, circulation. Something that we read about with COVID called a cytokine-mediated storm. So tell us in ER language, again, is there an association between COVID and MIS-C, how you came to that, or how your colleagues came to that, and this cytokine-mediated storm? Sure. So um, I think the probably the most cogent sort of way to make the connection is that from an epidemiologic standpoint, what we saw was that in many different cities, New York, Philadelphia, elsewhere, there was the initial wave of adult COVID disease followed a few weeks later with waves of MIS-C developing in children in those cities. 
Um, so that was one of the sort of the more historical connections. Uh, you could still argue that from a purist standpoint, that doesn't prove that SARS-CoV-2 is driving this. However, in reports started to come out that while many of the children that were being seen with MIS-C uh, were indeed negative by RT-PCR for presence of SARS-CoV-2, they actually showed evidence of having been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 vis-a-vis uh, the development of an immunoglobulin response or an IgG response, sort of almost as if they were in the convalescent phase of an acute viral infection, which is exactly what you would expect in terms of the timeline. Uh, we know from very well-done studies that neutralizing antibodies for SARS-CoV-2 start to develop in, in a second week after exposure and really sort of fine-tune and become highly uh, neutralizing types of antibodies in the third week. So by day 21 to 23, most adults and children have fairly decent titers of neutralizing antibodies. And that could actually be tested for, and, and most of these patients already had evidence that they were exposed and had developed IgG. Now, the truth is that that test has become you know, its, it's predictive value has been declining over time. So at a time where there wasn't a whole lot of SARS-CoV-2 in the community, having a SARS-CoV-2 IgG really was evidence that probably this is what led to your MIS-C. The truth is now there's so much SARS-CoV-2 in the community that the presence of the IgG doesn't necessarily tell you or isn't as predictive as to the actual underlying reason for the disease. So that's, that's from a sort of an epi and immune standpoint. From the perspective of the cytokine storm syndrome that you, that you mentioned, really this, this is a constellation or a, a, a sort of a spectrum of different syndromes that have the pathophysiologic outcome of having certain elements of the immune system continually being activated and releasing uh, sort of um, active proteins that are initially really meant to warn other components or other cells about the presence of some danger, whether that's a viral infection or something else or some other pathogen. But those, the, the, those cytokines, which are essentially chemical messengers that are released locally, do end up having end organ, um, uh, um, you know, in, in high quantities affecting end organs. And so what happens is if you have a subset of activated uh, cells, and as, in this case, it's believed to be really activation of a lot of um, sort of myeloid cells and T cells specifically that are making cytokines that are really designed to, to coordinate the activity in the immune system, but they can't get shut off for some reason. They continue to make these cytokines and both their effector function, T cell effector function or myeloid effector function, plus the overwhelming amount of cytokines that are produced end up resulting in damage to a lot of organs in a variety of different manners. And so that's, so cytokine storm syndrome is simply to say that some portion of the immune system has probably gone awry, its shutoff uh, system is failing and is continually being activated. And these cytokines plus the actual effector functions of those cells is causing damage to internal I see, Katie. Many of these patients with uh, this cytokine storm, like I said, end up in the PICU. 
Have, do you see other diseases where the cytokine-mediated storm exists? In other words, part of the differential or other, since uh, we've seen it with Missy, what diseases in the past also had this cytokine-mediated storm dysregulation? Yeah, so I think, and Hamid, please correct me if I'm if I'm saying this wrong, but you know, it's, it's sort of a um, it's sort of an adjective, not a noun, um, in terms of what's going on with patients. And so I think cytokine storm can be used to describe a whole lot of different diseases. Certainly, in patients who have um, severe sepsis, we start to see some immune dysregulation, hyperferritinemia, and, and something that appears to be on that spectrum of HLH. Um, I'm probably butchering the actual, you know, kind of the the nuance that Habib knows so much about, but certainly in, in those hyperferritinemic sepsis patients, we invoke this sort of immune dysregulation. Um, there are other infections that can drive that as well. And, and in terms of you know, other etiologies, um, certainly in some of our oncology patients, you know, post-transplant, they can have really significant immune dysregulation leading to this hyperinflammatory state that looks for all the world like sepsis and respiratory failure, but there's no, no organism. And so, so you know, we sort of invoke the same sort of thing of cytokine storm and immune dysregulation. And then certainly for actual HLH or macrophage activation syndrome, those things sort of have the same kind of pathophysiology. Hamid, would you add anything to that or, or modify that in any way? Yeah, I think we've also learned, I, I, I totally agree with you, um, but I would also add that CAR T-cell therapy has also opened one. our eyes with respect to that portion of that syndrome as well, in that patients who have overwhelming burden of, of uh, leukemia, for example, who are treated with um, CD19 CAR T-cells have an overwhelming activation of their T-cells, and that results in uh, a lot of cytokine being produced and some of the effector function of T-cells becoming overactivated and results in um, a HLH-like picture. Now, the cytokines that are elicited for each one of these can be a little bit different. So it is nuanced in terms of the patterns that can develop in each one of these cases. Uh, but the, the, the end stage pathology is one that is relatively common to all of them. Great. Thank you, Hamid, for sort of dialing that down a little bit so that we could understand things that you do in the lab on a daily basis. In our adult patients, especially now with vaccines uh, on the horizon and different phases of people getting the vaccines, there are specific risk factors for adults to get severe disease. I've read conflicting things in pediatrics. Are there comorbid conditions in pediatric patients to make them at risk to develop MIS-C? Any of you? I mean, clearly from COVID, there were some issues in regards to MISC. You know, the studies have shown probably more obesity more than anything else. So what we're seeing is that primarily this is affecting, you know, healthy patients without any significant medical problems. Katie, Hamid? Yeah, agreed. I feel like it's it's hard for me to actually think of patients that we've treated for MISC that have had comorbidities. Obesity, that may be true, um, and certainly is a, a, a disease and a comorbidity itself. But in terms of thinking about kids who have, you know, me- things that require them to take medications on a daily basis or be admitted to the hospital. I actually don't think I can think of really any or maybe one or two patients that's actually had any comorbidities. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's been striking actually how it's been predominantly kids without significant past medical history without comorbidities are the ones that are that seem to be at more, most risk for some reason. It's just most kids don't have comorbidities and, you know, so I, I suppose that's why. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's team, let's transition a little bit to treatment, okay? Obviously, the disease, it's a new disease. There's no random perspective studies out there. 
We're basically treating based on case reports and ongoing research, as Hamid alluded to. Since the disease, up to 50% of people meet criteria for Kawasaki's disease, we've been treating them with conventional Kawasaki's disease therapy. Let me ask you, should we treat or do we treat MIS-C based on phenotype? In other words, is there specific treatments based on the severity of the disease? Katie, you want to sort of take that? Josh and I will help identify and diagnose the MIS-C, but we don't usually start treatment outside of resuscitative treatment uh, until they get to the floor or to the ICU. So the question is, is there phenotypic treatment for MIS-C or does everyone get the the same standard treatment? I'll um, I'll try to answer that and then I'll punt to Hamid, like a good intensivist. Um, So I'll say, you know, like you guys, I think the cornerstone of, of the therapy for this is supportive care, is to make sure they have a blood pressure, make sure they have a heart rate, make sure they have a SAT, and then we can sort the rest out with the consultants. Um, so fundamentally, that's always our agenda in the ICU. In terms of a tiered approach to these, I would say the thing for me that's that's most tiered is the urgency with which therapy is initiated. So certainly this disease can mimic a lot of other things. And even in the ICU, I, you know, myself and my colleagues, if the diagnosis is uncertain, we are okay giving it a little bit of time to allow other diagnostic evaluation to come back, to send things, to have the rheumatologist come look at the rest, all of those things. So to me, the thing that is um, phenotypic or, or more tiered is really the the urgency with which therapy is started rather than the specific therapies. Now, certainly if the kid is in refractory shock and they're intubated on multiple pressors, then, then we treat them for all the things and sort of sort it out on the back end. But I think it's important to remember that even patients who come to the ICU and you're not sure what the diagnosis is, you can take a little bit of time to figure it out so you don't get yourself down, down the wrong path. And I, and I do think that that is something that can be tiered. In terms of um, starting, you know, specifically when we're talking about therapies, IVIG and steroids, you know, I think most often in the ICU, we do those two things concurrently because most of the kids that we're treating are fairly sick. And that's sort of extrapolated, I think, a bit from MAS slash um, Kawasaki shock syndrome. So most often we do those things together. And there was a series published recently that would suggest that that may be beneficial to, to some patients. Still still not randomized, still all observational, but, but perhaps that's the right approach. In terms of the patients who don't respond to those therapies, certainly there are other things that we've added on, and I'll let Hamid speak to the kind of the criteria for that, but other things like higher dose steroids, like pulse dose steroids. Um, and when I say pulse, I mean doses of 10 to 30 per kilo per day. Um, and anakinra have been some of the other therapies that we've used in sort of that staged, staged fashion. Maybe I'll pause there and turn it over to Hamid, and he can kind of speak to this as well. Right, Hamid, you're, you're usually at the bedside, Hamid, with not only your colleagues of infectious disease, but usually rheumatology, immunology, cardiology, and you all put your heads together and decide, you know, immunoglobulin, IVIG, dose of steroid, anakinra, anticoagulation. So sort of take us through some of those, give us the inside view, inside the huddle of those discussions. I guess when Katie says when the patient gets to the ICU, if they're in shock, they're getting hit hard with everything. So just elaborate on the patients, A, that you see on the floor with Miss C, but also the ones that either start on the floor and get transferred to the unit, or you get to see them for their first time in the ICU. Yeah. So I agree that, you know, to some extent, we may be using a sledgehammer to squash a grape, right? We are using relatively blunt instruments still to take care of a pathophysiologic process that we don't fully understand. And if we understood it better, we could have more nuanced and targeted approaches 
without having to resort to things like IVIG and steroids, which do have their own inherent sort of caveats in terms of their use. For example, as an ID consultant, and Katie will also speak to this, when you do use high-dose IVIG, that messes up your immunization schedule to follow, right? So we don't necessarily think of that as harm in an immediate sense, but it does actually have the potential to induce harm. And so if we understood what the true pathophysiologic constructs were, we could probably formulate better treatment strategies. With respect to the cytokines, our studies have shown that um, most of these children have elevations in a cytokine called IL-10 and a little bit of TNF or tumor necrosis factor. And those, you know, the IL-10 is actually what's thought to be a sort of a counter-regulatory cytokine, which is to say that there has been an antiviral response, which can be driven by type 1 and type 2 interferons, early on type 1 interferons and later type 2 interferons, and the T cells get activated. And eventually, there's sort of need to come back to their homeostatic baseline. And one of the cytokines that brings them back is IL-10, which can be produced by a number of different cell types, including regulatory T cells, which are, are designed to sort of return back, uh, return the immune response to a homeostatic baseline. But uh, in addition to that, we have seen a certain portion of the children have still very sky high or very elevated interferon gamma levels. So there probably is some kind of stratification. There probably are different subsets of patients, or at least patients presenting at different times in their pathophysiologic march along the spectrum that we haven't fully understood yet. And when we do, um, we could think about directed therapies for this. For example, there are anti-interferon gamma uh, and monoclonal antibodies. And you could make the argument if we understood things better, when we can use specific blockers or cytokine blockers or an antibodies to treat specifically. Having said that, from a, from a multidisciplinary standpoint, you know, we were fortunate enough to be able to stand up a cytokine panel that we could turn around uh, within less than 24 hours. And so we've used that to great extent in, in our patients to try and understand, you know, what some of the cytokine responses are and also whether the, the additional co-infections or potential for co-infections in some of our children. And, and we could see that there were sort of signals in some of the children with severe COVID-19, especially with co-infections, some miss C, but not as many. But was, with respect to the multidisciplinary team approach, and Katie will speak to this as well, is we initiated and instituted sort of a 3.15 p.m. set of rounds where the consultants would all get on a, um, you know, blue jeans call together and really discuss in detail the clinical findings, the things that um, make us think that this is or this isn't at MIS-C if there are diagnoses that were missing and initiation of immunomodulators, anticoagulants, so on and so forth which was really, really beneficial. I think all of us learned cohesively um, throughout, throughout this, uh, throughout this uh, uh, past year. And I will say with respect to the IVIG uh, and steroid story, uh, while we use those almost simultaneously as Katie alluded to, and we do see generally good effect, and if we don't, we can use higher doses of, of steroids and or anakinra to usually end up with, with good results. I will say that in limited resource countries, when you don't have any camera and you don't have a steady supply of IVIG, there have been kids who have been treated with steroids alone. Now, 
the outcomes are probably are, are not as good. I know that from looking at a couple manuscripts, a couple preprint preprints from other countries. Um, however, there is a possibility that in certain situations, and if we understood how to predict a priori which patients might benefit from steroids alone, that we would, we would be able to get away with steroids alone. Um, so we, we've had those debates in, in a couple of cases early on. We did use IVIG and sort of drag our feet on giving the steroids. In both of the cases that I was involved in, eventually we did have to give the steroids and, and the patient recovered very nicely after that. And so whether that's sort of anecdotal lore or institutional experience that has driven us to now initiate both almost simultaneously, I'm not sure. But I think that once we have a better understanding of the pathophysiology, we can probably start to suss that out. And there may be subsets of children that we can target more accurately. Right. Katie, you alluded to refractory disease. How would you define that? Obviously, Hamid and you both talked about the escalation of therapies that you would use, but how would refractory disease uh, be defined? Yeah, so I think it can be a couple of different things. I mean, most of this is a clinical picture for, for defining refractory disease. So pers- for example, persistence of fever, um, I think is often one of the major things, persistent cardiac dysfunction, persistent vasopressor requirements, you know, the kind of this presenting symptoms sort of not getting better, or them developing new symptoms. I can remember one patient early on who developed some hepatosplenomegaly that was sort of worrisome. And, you know, we've had other patients who have had progressive neurologic decline or persistent neurologic decline. And we didn't totally understand um, the pathophysiology of that, but we invoked the same inflammatory process that was driving the other multisystem inflammatory, you know, symptoms that we were seeing was also active in the brain. And so continued to target, you know, mental status and other measures of, of neurologic function in those scenarios. Great. Great. Thank you. And then certainly use the lab markers to kind of help us along the way. But I think in general, you know, often we're guided I think it's both the patient and the labs, but try to be guided by the patients. Perfect. The one other thing that I just wanted to add to him to, to the treatment discussion that hasn't come up is, is some of these patients, you know, we've talked a lot about the kind of acute phase management. Um, on the back end, though, after they receive their IVIG and they're sort of, you know, kind of improving, often transitioning to the floor, one thing that we've had some experience with is that they do get a little volume overloaded um, as they have this sort of capillary leak with their, you know, Miss C, they're a little, you know, got some lung water from that. Then they get slugged with IVIG. They've probably been sitting on IV fluids for a few days and it, it laying in bed, it just all adds up. And so I think some of these patients um, really do benefit from diuresis sort of a little bit, maybe, I don't want to say preemptively, but sort of being anticipating that they're going to develop some issues with volume overload and dosing them with some Lasix on the tail end of that IVIG, as long as their hemodynamics are fairly acceptable, I think has been a, a strategy that I've used quite a lot in the ICU and maybe gets them out of bed and off to the floor a little bit sooner. So, so I think that's just one thing to kind of keep in mind for the people on the floor and in the ICU as they're, as they're kind of moving towards that convalescent phase. Hamid, something to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add that there's something that we both have talked about, which is, you know, starting with something like one to two per kilo of steroids and then potentially going to 10 to 30 if the child is refractory. If you notice, what we didn't allude to was a second dose of IVIG. And I think it's important for two content, in, in, for two reasons to discuss that. One is the fluid overload that Katie just talked about, which is really important. The other is the second dose of IVIG is much more associated with the risk of hemolysis. And so while, you know, while we do, we would recommend perhaps increasing the steroid dose, most of us actually do not recommend a second dose of IVIG to be given because of the risk of 
hemolysis in these patients. So j- j- just something to bear in mind. You know, that's an excellent point since in, in many uh, reports with Kawasaki's disease, refractory Kawasaki's disease, first-line treatment for refractory cases is, Hamid, like you said, that second dose of IVIG. Let's transition to the future. I think the future is the current because, again, this disease has been around for less than a year. In the next few months, up to a year, pediatric patients are going to start to get vaccinated. Hamid, you talked about this cytokine-mediated storm, okay? I believe some of the vaccines work by triggering your immune system. Is there a concern in the trials that are starting now in pediatric patients for us to see, miss C as a adverse reaction to the vaccine? Yeah, so it's an, it's an excellent question for which we do not have a definitive answer. And, and one of the reasons why we don't have a definitive answer is we don't totally understand, again, the, um, the pathogenesis of the disease. There are several theories about it. So one of the theories and the reason why there may be some overlap with toxic shock syndrome is that there is a portion of the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 that certain um, uh, subgroups have, have argued resembles structurally what's called a superantigen. And what a superantigen does is that it binds your MHC, typically your MHC class two, uh, with uh, certain specific families of the T-cell receptor genes. These are called V-beta genes. And there are certain V-beta genes that can be bound on one end by the superantigen and the MHC class two on the other end by the superantigen, thereby activating the T-cell in a non-antigen specific manner. So kind of like a broad class of T cell becoming activated simultaneously. You know, the classic example of a superantigen mediated disease is toxic shock syndrome, where TSS1, which is a superantigen, does exactly that. And so these um, uh, researchers have shown that not only are these motifs, certain motifs that resemble this structural sort of phenotype available in the spike protein, but there's also an expansion of, of T cells with a specific B beta. So they've shown sort of both components to be in play. And so if that's the story and you have an expansion of these T cells, you know, perhaps you would argue that re-exposing children to that spike protein may actually be the wrong thing to do. But the truth is we don't know for sure that that is indeed the pathophysiologic mechanism. And this is a theoretical uh, you know, hypothesis in terms of the way that this disease may be driven. Um, so there is there is still some question about that. I will say with the rates of asymptomatic infection in children, which are fairly high, if there is a signal, I have a feeling that we're going to see with mass vaccinations that are actually being done right now under clinical trials, that we, we would probably see some kind of a signal. So in children who had actual infection, who are then re-vaccinated, it doesn't appear to, to date that we're seeing that signal. Now, I'm sure that those clinical trials have excluded children who've had MIS-C from the trials. And so I think the question still remains, if you've actually had MIS-C, should you get vaccinated? And I don't know if we have a definitive answer to that just as yet. 
Great. Again, a lot of unknowns with this diagnosis. It is relatively new. And I want to thank the three of you for your expert opinions based on your clinical practice, caring for children with Miss C, and your interpretation of the few articles, really, that are out there for Miss C. Let's conclude uh, the way we do for all podcasts. We want some final thoughts. So you're an ER resident or a PGR fellow driving into your shift now, listening to the podcast, really entertained by the three of you. What final thoughts on Miss C, whether it's diagnosis, treatment, the future, what words of wisdom, final thoughts, Josh, to our listeners? Um, so I, I guess I'm caught up on the, the future. Uh, for the MISC kids who were admitted, diagnosed, and treated, nothing has been published yet, but we have done follow-up you know, in cardiology clinic, and things have been looking pretty you know, good for them, which is great. And we also said that they recover extremely, you know, quickly, uh, which is also reassuring. My question is for those undiagnosed kids who had fevers at home, those kids who, you know, were, weren't sick enough to be hospitalized and thus treated with the steroids, are there going to be complications with those kids who did not get some sort of immune modulating therapy that you know potentially affects their prognosis down the line. So that's something that I'm kind of scratching my head about. I think those are excellent points, Josh. I know Primary Children's Hospital and Boston Children's Hospital are part of a study uh, with the mnemonic, the music study, and they will be looking at long-term outcomes after MIS-C disease, specifically cardiac outcomes of these children. But again, you bring up a good point. Children who may have not been truly diagnosed with it may be falling through the cracks. Katie, final thoughts? No, I think that that's an excellent point. I think the vaccine question is another really interesting one. I think one thing, just sort of um, taking it a step back and maybe a little bit bigger picture, but this should be really humbling for everybody. Um, this is a disease that like didn't exist, you know, 13 months ago or even 12 months ago. And now we have this disease. We're having this podcast where we're experts in this disease. And so I think if you weren't already excited um, about your chosen profession, like this should be really exciting and a really, um, you know, just sort of reinforce why we all do this and why this job will actually never possibly be dull because, because of things like Miss C that just happen on a Tuesday. So I think that that is just something that I'm, I'm struck by as I take a step back and, and reflect on the, the discussion that we've had over the hour. Thank you. I love those words, Katie. Hamid, you get the last word. Uh, excellent. I, I, I want to, again, reiterate what Katie said, which is this has been a humbling experience. But I want to also sort of add a, a tinge of optimism to this, which is to say that, you know, I think we're at a place where with respect to our investigations into the immune mechanism, into genomics, into all the things that we do, I think there's going to be an interesting path forward. And I'll just give you a small little anecdote. I'm actually on an NIH grant, uh, on a co-investigator with my division chief, Dr. Audrey John, and she actually has developed a way to look at the breath samples from children who come in with fever to identify through mass spectrometry, particular patterns that might be associated with the development of MIS-C. And so pairing the immune parameters with the breath analysis could provide for a predictive algorithm such that if a child is exposed and develops fever, you might be able to one day predict whether that child has a high score or high propensity or high probability to go on to develop MIS-C or to not. 
And so I think while I have been incredibly humbled and I continue to be humbled by many of the infectious diseases that I see on a daily basis, I, I hold a lot of hope and optimism in the power of, of collaborative science that's being done these days across many different institutions to try to really nail down the underlying pathophysiologic mechanisms as well as biomarkers that can be predictive of outcomes and, and, and uh, ways to treat uh, the children that we see. Great, Hamid. We, uh, our listening audience is comprised of a lot of pet-friendly people, uh, and I would be remiss if uh, I wouldn't ask you, Hamid, to talk about Penn Vet's role in the, uh, the study that you are undergoing regarding the breath analysis of uh, children. Sure. I, I'm happy to talk about it. I certainly don't want to talk about work that is not mine, so I have to give all the credit, obviously, to, to, to Audrey uh, and her group but they have developed uh, in, in, in collaboration with PenVet, this was sort of almost the proof of principle that in patients with NIST-C, there probably are volatile organic compounds that are being elicited in their breath or um, through the urine or other, other tissues that, that can be sort of broken down into a mass spec pattern that can be predicted. And the proof in the pudding was actually dogs that could actually be trained to very specifically, at a, at a very high rate of, of sensitivity, be able to identify SARS-CoV-2 infected versus non-infected samples that were put in front of them. Um, there were dogs out of, you know, out of the 11 dogs, I think some of the lowest, if I remember, hopefully I'm not botching this, if I remember and recall correctly, you know, some of the lowest sensitivities were in the 70% range. And there were dogs that were nailing every single one and had 100% sensitivity with respect to being able to identify um, the SARS-CoV-2 infected samples that were put in front of them. So it's, it's really remarkable um, that, that, you know, that sort of collaborative science and work can also lead to technological advances and ways for us to think about how to parse out um, um, biomarkers that can be of use in the future. Thank you, Hamid. So maybe one day the DIRT team will be adding some uh, dogs uh, from the Penn Vet to uh, assist in- uh, All the more fun. <laughs> right. Well, uh, on behalf of the entire Chop Pen podcast team, I want to thank Josh, Katie, Hamid for your expertise. And uh, since this disease is evolving, maybe we'll have the three of you back months or years down the line uh, when we know more about Missy. So again, thank you very much and uh, have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you.